Beyond the Ball, fueling your faith and family through sport. Welcome to the Beyond the Ball podcast with Coach Eric Klump and Coach Justin Gersten. Hey, hoop heads. We all hate ankle sprains, and they happen way too often. Ankle injuries are the number one sports-related injury. Arise is trying to change that. With the iFast, your athletes get preventative protection and full mobility. Athletes no longer need to wear bulky braces that limit performance and give mediocre protection. Anyone playing sports should be using these products. Keep your athletes in the game. Don't wait for them to get hurt to take action. Visit www.arise.com. Spelled A-R-Y-S-E. And use the code HOOPHEADS to get 20% off the future of performance. That's A-R-Y-S-E dot com with promo code HOOPHEADS to get 20% off. Coach Eric Klump, we are back and I'm very disappointed though. I'm trying to stay positive. You're going to have to pick me up a little bit. The Buffalo Bills game for today, the day that we are recording was postponed how are you doing with no Bills game? Usually we're talking after a Bills win. Yeah, and you know, it's so funny because the last couple of years, I believe that on uh, Columbus Day weekend, we've had, uh, it was, it's been a bye week. So yeah. we were, I was all excited to watch them, uh, you know, and have no work to worry about or anything. And then, bam, sure. they get postponed until Tuesday, <laughs> which is on a school night. So it'll be a lot different. Yep, yeah, I'm almost in the same boat here. So... Ah, it was a beating. Yeah, you know what, though? A lot of good games today. I did get a little bit of work done outside. One of our more uh, nice, on the nicer side of a fall day here Mm -hmm. in Western New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we got a little bit of uh, housework done. That was a common thing going on on social media. You know, some Bill's Twitter chatter was just about now that there's no bills game how are you enjoying your f- nice fall sunday so golf we got courses some are probably pretty busy everybody doing their housework getting it done closing Absolutely. the pools up if they haven't done that already yeah a lot of state parks and parks in the region getting a lot of uh, visitors with the fall foliage yeah. and things of that nature so yeah i'm sure it's pretty uh pretty busy day for western new yorkers there's not really much time to slow down anyway so it's good we know what's coming yeah, we definitely know what's coming. That is for sure. And if you don't live in Buffalo and you're listening to this, we're talking about snow. We are talking about snow. Um, Coach, who do you got, or what do you got to celebrate this week? You know, my celebration goes out to um, all the older teachers that have been doing this for a really long time. I was able to sit down with a couple of them from our district and and talk about some ideas. And you know, when people can come out of their comfort zone. And they're working so hard. They're working so hard for other people's kids. And it's just their passion that comes out. And I just want to celebrate them for coming out of their comfort zone and doing whatever it takes to prepare and give their best effort when they go in and and teach their lessons. So celebration to those teachers out there. Yeah, that's a really good celebration. I think sometimes, you know, people that are not in teaching forget that you know as an older teacher and we're, we're like right in the middle of that transition i would say right we're both in the, been in this thing mm-hmm. more than 15 years um so about halfway to a 30-year career but you do it's if and i think it's in any aspect of life if you're really passionate about something 
you're going to you're going to stay in it for the long haul and we've said this time and time again in my district i know with some older teachers as well the kids you know keep coming and the faces change and the names change but your job and your priority to priority to them is still completely the same and i think uh that's such a great celebration especially you know, a lot of times we get some young kids that get into teaching and obviously the enthusiasm should be there. You know, they're coming out of school and um, they're ready to get their career started. So mm-hmm. it's oftentimes staying consistent in your approach. You definitely have to be in it for the right reasons. I don't think anybody, you know, stays super engaged and motivated unless they're really, uh, really passionate about what they do. So such a great celebration. You got one for us? I do, actually. Uh, We just mentioned working outside and enjoying this fall day. Uh, My celebration goes out to my pops. Um, Mm. He just had... Big Mike. Big Mike gets my celebration today. Um, I probably took advantage of him a little bit today. He just had some uh, surgery about a week and a half to two weeks ago. And from this recording, and he is technically not supposed to be, you know, out and working. He's going back to work tomorrow. So he wanted to ease back into like doing some odds and ends and like getting his body moving again. So he decided to help me with some projects around my house. He didn't ease back into it. And he didn't really ease back into it. He got right after it today. We had a tree to cut down from a windstorm we had a couple days ago. Yeah. Uh, we had some other stuff to winterize, getting ready for that snow you were talking about earlier. Uh, and I just celebrate my dad. He's just like, you talk about role models and heroes. We've talked about that on this podcast before. There's not one single person that would ever be able to top my list in terms of my pop. So big celebrations for him. He's uh, no spring chicken. He's on the younger side still. Uh, and he's he one of the a... top scorekeepers in the game. Yeah, that is to be determined this year. He's looking no. at maybe um, Giving venturing up off. Maybe. Well, <laughs> we have some. Our issue, coach, is that we have some, you know, restrictions on who can come and watch our games in the event that we actually get to play, mm. right? And how many people get to enter the gym to watch these athletes play. If it's one parent, two parents, and, you know, friends and family are going to be restricted. And so um, my father actually is really good friends with a, a parent of one of my athletes uh, and wants to potentially give up that scorekeeping job so that the dad who's been a fill-in for us could maybe scorekeep instead mm-hmm. so that he can get maybe an extra person in to see uh, his son play, his, his, you know, some family members or whatnot. So my dad actually being very uh And right there unselfish. it explains Mike. Yeah, very unselfish. He could he could show up and collect the check and you know, he's obviously done it for us for 15 years or so since I was I've been coaching varsity basketball so 15 plus years. So, um I would miss him, but at the same time, I have complete faith in the guy that is going to hopefully be doing it for us instead, but uh yeah, my dad's super selfless in that respect and just wants to make sure that you know, these parents can see their athletes. And if that's a way he can help, he's all about doing it. So maybe, maybe not. I hope he's on the, I hope he's on the book because it's nice to be able to just pass that responsibility off and and not have to worry about it. So we'll see what happens, but yeah, big celebrations to, to big Mike today. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, what do you got for us for a verse today? Okay, for a verse, actually, I'm, I'm going to go to more of a, of a message. I was sure. reading uh, a message that Corey Asbury wrote about, um, which he's the artist behind one of my favorite songs, Reckless Love, which I highly okay. recommended if yeah. those out there that haven't heard of it. So he shares a story about writing the song Reckless Love and, and what it meant by him when he uses the phrase the reckless love of God. So he describes it as a love beyond, beyond comprehension, that his, his love bankrupted heaven for you and for me, and his love doesn't consider himself first, and it's not selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he will be gaining or losing if he puts himself on the line. He just puts himself out there on the chance that you and I might look back at him and give him that same love in return. And it's just so comforting to know that there's no shadow. He won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up coming after us. There's no wall he won't kick down, no lie he won't tear down coming after us. Um, this was just something that you know made my week in this pod is all about serving others. So I felt compelled to share that with our listeners. Yeah, I actually really love that song. In my Spotify playlist, I have playlist, I should say. There is one for gratitude in there. And so just certain songs that is at the top of the list. So in the event that I'm taking a walk or just need to clear my head, that one definitely comes on. And I think it's right. You know, you can kind of get rid of some of that anxiety um, if you do believe um, that you might have just about little things that that don't matter. Your, your good deeds, your heart, uh, we'll show. We talked about that in our last podcast um, with Seth about, you know, hiring the person with with the truest heart, somebody that is well-intentioned. And if you are doing those things, um, that reckless love is there for you to just, you know, act with confidence that things will work out and you're going to be in good shape. So for sure. Yeah. I mean, what do we I got love, tonight? So tonight, I mean, I think we can transition to that. And just in terms of the guy we have on with us tonight is a guy named uh, Brent Tipton, uh, who is the U-17 coach for the Guam national team. So we're going to be talking with him here in a little bit. And while it's about eight o'clock our time, it's actually like nine o'clock in the morning for him tomorrow. Uh, so I'm super excited to be talking to him and talk about you know, not worrying about things working out and jumping into it and being fearless mm -hmm. uh, for talk somebody about, to go literally literally halfway around the world uh to to pursue your passion uh this is a conversation i'm really excited to yeah, have and to so, serve others through the game that's what yeah, it's all about absolutely so we're gonna go take a break and we'll be back with coach tipton hey hoop heads we appreciate you listening to this episode of beyond the ball with justin gerstung and eric clump be sure to check out these other basketball shows on the hoop heads podcast network including Thrive with Trevor Huffman, the CoachMaze.com podcast, Players Court, and Bleachers and Boards. If you're an NBA fan, explore our team-focused NBA pods, Cavaliers Central, Grizz and Grind, 305 Culture, Nuck If You Buck, Blazing the Path, and Hashtag Lakers. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, and my co-host, Jason Sunkel, featuring the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA. All right, welcome back to Beyond the Ball. Uh, I am Coach Justin Gersten, of course, with my best friend, Eric Klump, and we are joined with, by Coach Brent Tipton tonight. Coach, how are you? 
You know, I'm doing wonderful. It's uh, for me, it's uh, early or late morning on Guam. We're about, I think, 14 hours ahead of you. Uh, so we've had a you know an eventful morning. We're doing well. Uh, just it's a pleasure and honor to be able to talk to you guys, and I'm really looking forward to this uh, this uh, interview. So Brent, um, you know we at at uh, Beyond the Ball we're super pumped because to know that we're reaching out all the way to Guam. Yes. You know how how does a uh, Midwestern young man end up in a tropical island in the Western Pacific? You know, that's, that's a good question. I'm still shaking or scratching my head on that one. Uh, my wife came to Guam in 2006 when we were dating and she fell in love with it. She did a camp out here um, for a church and uh, she's, we, we went back to college and she said she wants to move to Guam. We were going to get married and she's like, you got to consider moving there. So uh, at the time, my roommate was actually from Guam and that kind of helped with you know, learning more about Guam and what the culture was, how the people were, and, you know, the, just the awesome opportunities that Guam has to offer. And so I said, okay, well, you know, when we get married, let's move to Guam. And that was in 2008 and 13 or going on 13 years later, I'm still here. So it's definitely uh, a great opportunity. And it's, you know, it's been a wonderful experience. I mean, talk about, you know, a request before you even get married, right? We talk about that all the time with my wife, like certain deal breakers when you're going to get married and where you're going to live is typically one of those things. And just to be able to say, yes, I'll move to Guam. What a, what a courageous, what a courageous move. You know, I thought Guam, and this is the truth. I thought it was by Vietnam. And so I was like, okay, I was looking on the map and she's like, let's move to Guam. So I looked, I was looking over and, you know, Asia side. And I was like, I can't find it. And she's like, well, it's an island in the middle of the South Pacific. And I'm like, well, that's as long as it has white beaches, I'm good. Let's go. So yeah. kind of a backstory there. <laughs> yeah. How old were you guys when you moved there? 20. Uh, let's see. I was going, I just turned 22. Okay. Yeah. So you're young, adventurous and ready to go then for sure. And when yes, you got you there and you realized that uh, you wanted to give this basketball thing a go over in Guam, culturally, what was it? What was the basketball environment like over there? Um, it's you know, basketball is very it's well loved. It's I would say it's the there's a tie between soccer and basketball, uh, but the, you know it's a well loved sport. Uh, I came over here in 2008. I had played Division Three basketball. I thought I was completely done playing, uh, but I moved here and I, I just asked around, where is the best basketball being played? And they directed me to a gym uh, that the national team was currently having some open runs in. And so I, I went there and I started practicing, started playing. I eventually get named to their, kind of like their local domestic roster because I didn't have my FIBA residency. So I would represent, you know, Guam in local tournaments and we would go to the Philippines and, and play in tournaments. So I'd represent Guam there, but I never got to represent Guam uh, on a FIBA uh, sanctioned uh, tournament. And then 2012 is when they came and asked me to start coaching their youth national teams. And so in, in some way, uh, shape or form, since 2012, I've been coaching the youth national teams uh, for the men's for the men on the men's side, under 16, under 17, and under 18 national team. I also had a year stint where I was the women's senior national team, and then currently, right now, I'm 
uh, the assistant uh, coach for the men's senior national team. So have had my hat or hand in a, a different areas with the, the national programs and just really fortunate for the opportunity and just thankful for, you know, just the trust that uh, Guam basketball has, has, per, or has given to me as a coach. So coach, I'm, let me just reset this quick. Cause I want to make sure I'm hearing you right. So you're, met your girlfriend and you guys are planning on getting married. She wants to move to Guam and you moved to Guam to be with her. Is that correct? No, uh, she came out here all by herself. Uh, Originally, right? And the funny story, she broke up with me while she was here. And so when we got back to school, I, I was like, I don't, I don't even want anything to do with Guam. And so, you know, it's kind of like a, it's just funny how things work out, but you know, when things are meant to be, it happens. So, uh, but yeah, uh, she was out here by herself and then she went back to school and then, uh, then, then we got back together, I guess you could say. And then that's when we decided to move here. But there was no real plan like for you to go to Guam by yourself. It was just kind of because you guys were together and that became the plan, correct? That's correct. Yes. I had no intention. In fact, kind of like typical of most college, you know, age uh, guys, I just didn't know what I was going to do after college. And so, yeah. uh, you know, when you get the right woman in your life to to make you a better person and to challenge you and help you grow, uh, you know, sometimes that's what is needed. And so she really helped me with, you know, helping our family get a, you know, a firm foundation here on Guam and uh, just really, you know, kind of, I guess, putting our family, even though we don't, we have a four-year-old son, really kind of being a, a cornerstone to our family early on. So just really grateful for that. Yeah. And I guess I bring that up and wanted to dive a little deeper because we've talked to a bunch of coaches that have come into coaching basketball in a variety of ways. Like some knew they were going to be a coach from the time they were young. Some went into the private sector and figured out that they wanted to coach and jump back in. I just love the the story behind you guys, you know, connecting, moving to Guam and you looking for a place to still play, but that materializing into coaching. To me, that's just really uh a crazy cool story um, to kind of hear that. Yes. And, and I didn't, I never wanted to coach. Um, I, when I first moved to Guam, I, I was working at a Christian school as a, a physical education teacher and they're like, Oh, you play division three basketball. You will coach the team. And I'm like, I don't want to coach. <laughs> I, I have no intention of doing that. Right. And then over about a three to four year span, I, I, uh, in 2012, I had, or 2011, 2012, I had torn my hamstring twice. And so I just couldn't play anymore. It was just, you know, it's just too devastating. I was just kind of done with the rehabilitation. And so they asked me to coach. And then at, at first I was like, you know, okay, I'll give it a try. But, you know, over the course of the eight years that I've been coaching for the Guam national teams, I didn't realize that coaching would end up becoming my life calling and something that, I feel that God has put into my life as the means for me being able to build relationships. And it's really my, I guess it's the, the charge that, or the, 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 the thing that charges my battery personally is coaching. So really fortunate and really grateful that the course of events had led me to that. Yeah, that's that's a pretty incredible story because we ask everybody that comes on here almost that shares the same story. Like, have you ever had that that 
feeling like God is pushing you here, tugging you in, in this direction. And, and a lot of them um, share a variety of different stories. So this is a really incredible story uh, about just it, it just happened to become your passion um, after your playing days were done. Uh, did, have you have you um, gotten into like, any sports other than than basketball while you're over there in coaching or has it just been basketball? Right. It's, it's just been basketball. I never played any other sports growing up. It was only basketball. Um, and so, you know, we've studied other sports on how they, they coach. Um, and, you know, so, we, I mean, we study other sports, but here on Guam, it's only been basketball as far as coaching. Mm-hmm. And and when you're getting into to like breaking down like us as coaches, I believe like practice is the best thing. It's like our classroom where we get to teach and we get to motivate and cultivate, and we see those connections to the game. So like, um, you know, so Coach Tipton, are you an offensive guy, or you, what would you call yourself a defensive guy? Lay it out there for us. That is a really good question. I, I, uh, you know. I used to thought think I was a defensive coach because I didn't know how to teach decision making in offense. But I think the biggest part of you know your practice sessions one uh, is your practice session or your practice environment something that I've learned from other coaches. It is an air positive learning environment. So are we shaping our practice to where players know that mistakes are a part of learning? Um, do they understand that when they do make a mistake? that the way we respond to players' mistake, um, is it gonna be through a growth mindset? Is it gonna be through uh, through them knowing that we're going to, uh, our correction is actually coaching, whereas our correction is not their, our criticism of what they're doing. And so I think the biggest thing, and the best, the best way that we can do that is through the player's decision-making. And so I've kind of shifted from being a defensive coach or an offensive coach to being a coach that wants to heavily emphasize decision-making and then coaching players through the mistakes or successes of their decision-making. And I do believe that the best way to do that is through the offensive side of the ball. Um, So I I guess I I could say I I lean more towards the offense, Um, but when it comes down to when we're actually coaching in a session, it's always two-way teaching to where we're, co- we're coaching offense and defense in the same drill or the same concept. Uh, so that way we can really uh, give uh, context to what we're teaching in practice. So um, I don't know if that made sense, but that's really what, what we try to focus on is ultimately at the end of the day, player has to be a great decision maker. And we, we really kind of capitalize on that on the offensive end. Yeah. You see that a lot now. I, I actually, I mean, you, you're looking through social media, a lot of small sided games and decision making. And Coach Gersting and I were on one night on a Zoom talking about dominoes um, and, and different three on twos or one player advantages. So when you say we, how many coaches are you usually working with in your practices? Uh, usually just one other coach, uh, me and an assistant coach, or if it's with our men's team, it's me and the head coach. So that's basically all that our our, our coaching staff is going to consist of. And then uh, we do have a, uh, a sports performance trainer or a physio. And he, you know, he has a, a coach of many hats as well. He'll also jump in and, and help coach as well. But that's typically what our coaching staff looks like. 
Coach, I am just really enamored by everything you're saying right now. And I just want to dive a little deeper if I could. So my first question is, so culturally, you know, being raised in the United States, playing, you know, your high school ball in Missouri, then playing in Wisconsin, what is, are there any like stark differences, like very major differences from coaching and teaching, learning the game, in your opinion, in the United States from how you guys are trying to approach it in Guam? Is there a cultural difference or is it more just philosophically different, like small side of games versus maybe some of that block practice you did when you were in high school? Definitely. Yes. We, I mean, when I, when I was playing in high school and even in college, it was a lot of blocked on air uh, to where, you know, practice, the practice environment seemed very successful because we weren't making any tactical errors or really any technical errors because there was no defense. <laughs> so we do had, we, we have made a shift uh, to where we do focus heavily upon random uh, and random decision-making, whether that's through small-sided games. Um, and we're trying to teach concepts um, as much as possible to uh, add to a player's decision-making during the game. And, and the, a player has to have context uh, in, or when they're, when they're learning a skill, they have to have context. So uh, Alan Keane has done a great, or has kind of made aware more of uh, the perception action coupling to where, uh, decision is going to precede the skill. And that's kind of the mindset and what we have embraced and teaching our players in this whole decision-making process that we want every single drill that we do to have a decision involved uh, with the exception of maybe a five minute, get, get a player ready for practice mentally, physically. So we're really trying to focus on that uh, perception action coupling and putting the decision as the priority uh, in all the drills that we are we're we're doing for our players. That's great. And so, is there like a cultural difference? Do you recognize? I know you said you've been there for for a little bit now, over ten years. Do you see any cultural differences, like in the way your athletes prepare or their attitudes coming in? Are they receptive to this coaching and this this style of doing it? I think a Guam athlete, uh, as far as, as culture goes, there's, there's definitely a, a um, when you think of an island, you think of, you know, laid back, going to the beach, uh, throwing a shaka, you know, in Zori's or what we call uh, sandals and then in board shorts, you know, that's what you think of in a typical island. Yes, we do have that. Uh, and yeah, you see that even in our athletes, I mean, they're, they're pretty laid back and uh, chill, but, when you get them on the court, our, our basketball players are very relentless. Um, they they work extremely hard. They, you know, it's it's in the culture to to not back down. Um, the word to fight is fuck I. They have that that spirit of they're not going to back down from anybody, no matter the population. We play Australia. Their population is twenty five million. Our population is 160,000. There is no backing down there. And that's a really cool thing to, we very rarely have to question a player's work ethic just because culturally it's in them to work hard just through what they've seen their grandparents and, you know, their, their, their great grandparents, what they've had to go, go through with, 
you know, different wars that, you know, occupation by Japan uh, and dur during World War II, you know, they, they have that fighting spirit. And it's really, uh, it's fun to be around that type of attitude, you know, coming from their culture. It's truly amazing what sport can do. It's just so cool for me to hear it from that perspective. Uh, dig a little deeper, if you would, or go a little deeper on your competition. So you say you play, said you played like Australia. What other uh, teams are you competing in um, from the island of Guam? So our youth uh, participate, well, our FIBA zone is Oceania. So the countries of Oceania include Australia, New Zealand, Samoa, Tahiti, Fiji, uh, New Caledonia, Papua New Guinea, uh, and then the Solomon Islands, sorry, the Cook Islands. And so those are basically who are the, the countries that our youth is going to, um, to, to face. Our men's team, uh, right now we're currently in the middle of the, the window of the first and second window of the FIBA Asia Cup. So we've had to to win a pre-qualifier to even get into the, the, the windows of the Asia cup. So our men's team have played Thailand, Indonesia, uh, Macau, um, Malaysia. Um, I think uh, the other team of that tournament was Fiji. Uh, so we've, we've had different competition with other Asian countries. Um, but our youth hasn't been able to, you know, we don't have the opportunity to play Asian countries unless it's a friendly. Um, so that's basically who our competition entails um, within the uh, Oceania uh, FIBA zone. What a Go ahead, Eric. So I was wondering, like, where where do, where does Guam sit? Um, is there one team in in I would say that that league or the area where they they are the team to beat? Where I mean, are you? Uh, working to get to their level, what team would that be, or is it you guys? Oh man, no, it's definitely not us, uh, which is a really good thing. So uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, we just we we just competed last year. The, the most recent under seventeen uh, championships that we competed in was in New Caledonia, uh, August of two thousand and nineteen. So uh, we finished um, we finished fifth in that tournament or in that, in that championships, Australia took first and then it was New Zealand. Uh, then it was Samoa and then it was Tahiti. And then we finished fifth. Um, so Australia, New Zealand, Australia is a top three, um, you know, a top three, uh, federation in the world. New Zealand just moved to 24th in the world. And so, I mean, we're, our men, our men are ranked at 84th in the world. So, I mean, there is a vast difference between an Australian national team under 17 in New Zealand compared to our Guam team. So you look at our Guam team, we have one player right now who's, uh, who had played division two. We have a player in prep school right now. And then some players in division three, that's basically the level of player that, uh, um, that our national team is going to produce. Whereas an Australian national team, they got, you know, their, their whole team is full of division one commits uh, or NBL commit. So uh, they're just on another level. We're competing in the middle of the pack, every single championships with Samoa, Tahiti, uh, New Caledonia, and then Guam. And not, not to exclude other countries, but that has been historically in the last eight years who we've been competing against to get to that bronze medal game. And so, 
In 2016, we were fortunate to uh, win bronze with their under-18 national team, which was the first time that we had medaled in a youth um, championship. And then again, in 2017, we bronzed as well. So um, that's really where where we fare within the Oceania region. Oh, great response. Great response. So other than like, I mean, from what I got from the Australia response as superior athletes, are there other things from – um, teams where you just take bits and pieces from how they play, you really enjoy how they play, and, and you bring it back to your squad? We uh, That's a good question. We are always looking to, to, to how the style of play that Australia and New Zealand are competing with. Um, so we do – I mean, we, we're, we're big as well on dominoes. We try to get uh, – we try to get our, – our, our style of play on our, our youth side is – um, we run a two-sided fast break. We're trying to get big advantage shots within the first six to eight seconds of the shot clock. And then we're teaching concepts on how to trigger a small advantage that leads into a big advantage. And so that's our style of play, just introducing concepts as opposed to sets. Uh, and that's the way New Zealand typically plays. Um, Australia is very uh, again, they're a top three, top five nation federation in the world. So their style of play is very cerebral. Cerebral. Uh, they play well out of concepts. They're very disciplined on both sides of the ball. And so, yes, we do want to uh, model how they do play. But at the end of the day, because of our, you know, our lack of height and you know the 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 low population that we have, we have to have to have a style of play that we can take advantage of. And so we really do focus on uh, the style of play offensively where we're trying to score big advantage shots early in the shot clock. And then we have to, we have to, uh, to pressure full court and run and jump just to create more of a, a up simple pace so that we can increase our offensive possessions. And so with that, we also tag up. Uh, on uh, on def- on defensive transition uh, it's just to try and create that extra 10 possessions a game which is one of our goals uh, so that we can have an opportunity to compete with countries that are um, better skilled than us and or more athletic than us coach I love like so this covid crisis that we've been experiencing has allowed a lot of coaches to expand their knowledge, right? Zoom calls everywhere, virtual coaching clinics. And so a lot of the concepts that you just mentioned, we've, Coach and I have seen in a lot of these Zoom calls, like the two-sided fast break and things of this nature. What are some of the things that, or people, I should say, that you've really drawn some of your experience from? You know, just touching back from the beginning of our conversation, you weren't necessarily looking to get into coaching when you started, but I mean, you seem pretty well versed um, in the FIBA style of play and trying to give your team the best opportunity to win. So where has all this learning come from for you? What are you looking for when you're trying to improve yourself as a coach? That's a really great question. Uh, coaching is a craft that is never meant to be mastered. And so I, this is, you know, this is at the forefront. Every, every day that I wake up to study, I understand that I don't, I don't understand the game the way I need to understand it. And so it's always a quest to, to improve, to learn. And, you know, from that, just, it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of researching and it's a lot of 
uh, intentionally watching clinics with a purpose. So uh, I, I talked to some coaches and they said that they've, they watched a hundred clinics this week and they have notes on all these clinics. I, I don't do that per se. Um, but I, I did, uh, I had studied during the lockdown and we're actually still in a lockdown, believe it or not, we've been, we're going into our seventh week of a lockdown. Um, but I, I, I wanted to study three themes. Uh, and, and the reason why I wanted to say these three themes is FIBA Oceana had asked me to give webinars on a, a few topics. So the first topic was creating an advantage with the mid pick and roll. And so, you know, doing a lot of research on how, how the mid pick and roll is taught, uh, how to put this into a, a games based approach to coaching, uh, and just how to teach the details of the, the mid pick and roll. And then I gave a, another webinar through FIBA Oceana on uh, it was the topic was team defense, uh, but more specifically, I wanted to understand or, or know and to continue uh, teaching how to control penetration so that our, our rotations avoid dominoes. And so got into, got really in depth on studying how to control penetration to avoid dominoes. And then the most recent webinar that I did for FIBA Oceana, as well as for uh, Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia, was the two-sided fast break. And so teaching how we uh, teach the two-side fast break, why adopt the two-side fast break. Um, basically for us Asian countries, we are gonna be smaller than uh, you know the, the nations that we're going to compete against in FIBA Asia or FIBA Oceania. And so we just feel like the two-side fast break gives us that advantage. And then, you know, just teaching conceptually with the pick and roll. And then obviously on the, on the defensive side of the ball, the biggest thing that every team needs to do is stand up rotation. So just diving deep into those topics and how to teach it and then how to break it down in small sided games to teach it has been the, really the three things out of the last, I guess, six months that I've really dove deep into studying. So when you when you're talking about creating um, advantages with a mid pick and roll, why why does why do you think that that has came to be so popular compared to like you know we saw a lot of continuity um, pick and roll like in the last five years, but now you see a lot of the NBA they go either the horn set or the the two high set or they go that that mid pick and roll. Why has it became so popular? Well, I think. With when teaching pick and roll concepts, I think, and this is my understanding of it, and you know, I may have a knowledge gap here, and, and so I just want to put that at the forefront that I could have a knowledge gap here, but this is how I interpret it. When we're teaching the pick and roll, I had done flow concepts, you know, with a continuity ball screen, but I would always use a pick and roll to create a shot, whereas now we are using the pick and roll to create an advantage. And whether that advantage is a small, if that advantage becomes a small advantage, then we need to, to flow into another concept or another type of player movement to create another small advantage to hopefully to where we get a two on the ball situation so we create a big advantage. And so I feel that's, the, I feel that's best done through the middle third of the floor, whether that's through gets or whether that's through a mid pick and roll, uh, as opposed to with a, a continuity. Because with a continuity, it's to me, it's it's easily scouted. Uh, we want to free players up to where they're only reading the coverage 
um, and, and, and as opposed to having to remember their continuity or to remember their, their set. And so on the use side, I hope this answers your question, but we just feel like it's, we should use it more to create the advantage. And then from there, read the advantage to whether or not we got defensive dominoes, or whether or not we have a small advantage or a big advantage. And so we just feel it, it's for us, it helps best teach uh, conceptually how to play the game. Yeah, I, I got you. Like you're, you're, you're incorporating that indecision on that defense. And from there, then they can start making decisions um, based on what the defense is and you, hopefully gaining the advantage from there. Right. And, and, and the cool thing, and this is something that I've, I've learned through is teaching the pick and roll is always coverage dependent. And so meaning we have to have a solution for what the defensive coverage is. And if we don't have a solution for their coverage, uh, then we become a prisoner of their coverage. And so we're, we're always teaching, you know, those, uh, those decisions going back to, you know, how type, what type of coach I am always trying to teach the decision-making process behind the skills. Um, and then teaching them that you got to have a solution. We teach them the solution. And then from there, we just, we have to let the players figure it out. We have to let them play. We have to let them make the decision. And so, you know, that's really our explore, exploration with teaching the mid pick and roll. Awesome. And, and let me just add for our listeners here. Um, you, you mentioned a get explain what that is. A get is where the guard is going to throw to a big or throw and go. So we're going to throw to a big and then is going to try and out sprint his pass to get a hand back by the big. And so we actually teach gets before we even teach a pick and roll uh, because it puts uh, uh, the, the both the receiver and the player who receives the get into decision-making um, opportunities to where maybe we don't even need a pick and roll. And so uh, we call it cat and mouse to where I can throw and go with the big, I get, and then if I got a driving line where my defender is, you know, in a chase position on my hip trailing me, then I just create an advantage on a driving line. Whereas if that defender, I say I throw and go with the big and I go back to get it and my defender goes under uh, the big, uh, then I'm going to play cat and mouse with the big. The big's going to twist that screen, and then we can play some pick and roll. And so we like to teach that get because of the numerous decision-making uh, opportunities for players, but also going back to the first decision. Once I get it, if I got a driving line, then I'm going to get on that driving line and try to create a big advantage shot. And so we feel like it simplifies pick and roll play. And then it leads us into another way to scaffold teaching, which leads into from the get leading into pick and roll play. Coach, I love all that stuff. And we're getting a little technical there, which I love. I mean, I could go all day with this stuff. So my question to you, because I, and I appreciate coach for clarifying and asking what a get is, um, how let me just bring this back to you teaching it then so obviously a vocabulary with your athletes has to be pretty clear and pretty concise you and your staff have to be you know really in sync with what you're calling stuff so that you can like you said scaffold it out um so that there's a clear understanding of how how to make those decisions and what plays to create right that's correct and i guess with the terminology side um, we want to coach in sound bites as opposed to 
long paragraphs. And so we want short descriptive visual cues so that our players can relate that visual cue to the teaching point. So for instance, uh, uh, for a drive, we say punch, and for a pass out, we say spray. So we're constantly talking about a punch and spray. So that visual cue of punch in the paint, and then the, also the visual cue of a spray can, like a, you're graffiti in a wall, that spray goes everywhere, has a dimension of where, of where the pass can go, which is always to a weak side, two side, either the corner or 45. It gives them that visual cue. And so we, we want to coach in those sound bites because if we have short descriptive visual cues, then that can cover two paragraphs of teaching. So now I can coach on the fly. I don't have to stop practice. Uh, and we can, and, and we can, you know, we're not put on a clinic when we coach. And so really our terminology is, has come down to, we want one syllable, one syllable teaching words or uh, one syllable or uh, three words that are one syllable, like a punch and spray. So uh, that's really what, how we try to uh, make our terminology simple for our players on our team. So when this terminology is being implemented, and I know we've touched on this a little bit, you're going to let them make decisions and we're playing small sided games. How have you developed your coaching style to allow that to happen? Because I know as a coach, you know, I've done this about 20 years. I think that's been the hardest thing for me, right? And as a, as a change that I've had to go through starting out really young as a coach, very similar to you, I think you kind of coach what you know. And I've always was always coached like, um, that block practice, run it perfectly, um, run the drill exactly how it's supposed to be done so that you never make a mistake, but that's not how the game's played. So as a coach, I had to like get a different approach to that so that you can live with some mistakes in practice. So how has that developed for you? That's a, that's a really great question. And I'm glad you got to players' mistakes because I feel that that's the one thing that's going to test my coaching philosophy. And how I respond to a player making mistakes within these small sided games or even, you know, whether that mistake is behavioral, emotional, or whether that mistake is a tactical, technical mis mistake, um, I think it all goes down to the question, am I going to create an error positive learning environment in my practice sessions? And so while they're in a small sided game, before we get really the first day of practice, we, we're talking about a phrase. I stole this. I don't know where I stole it from. So I, I, I want to give credit where credit's due. But the phrase is correction is not criticism. And then we, we tell the players that we're going to change that phrase to coaching is not criticism. And so when we tell them we're going to when coaching is not criticism, we, we say that we're going to coach you through mistakes and uh, and, and we want them, or they want, uh, we want them to understand that we acknowledge that they're going to make mistakes, and that mistakes are part of their learning. And so, when we stop practice to coach a mistake, and we try to, we try to talk in sound bites. So, you know, ten seconds, fifteen seconds, thirty seconds. We want them to know the heart behind why we are addressing a, a mistake. And so um, when we're creating this error positive learning environment during our, let's just, you know, given an, an example of a small sided game, one, we have to be okay with messy learning. Uh, and then two, we have to judge, and this is my opinion, we have to judge the decisions of our players independent of the outcome. 
And so whether they made the right decision, but the outcome of a made basket or uh, uh, let's just, you know, we're talking about, you know, let's just say that on a, on a mid pick and roll, a defender goes under that screen. Well, our automatic is we're immediately going to twist that screen and rescreen. And so whether they made the right decision there or not, we're going to, sorry, the outcome was correct or not. If the player makes the right decision, then we give them a coach's clap. And so for us, we are, we have different coaches clap for, you know, for different things, but a coach's clap is you're going to be on the sideline clapping and encouraging through your body language, even though uh, the outcome was unsuccessful. So we're, we're going to praise a decision with our coaches clap. And uh, I think it's important for our players to understand that we are going to profusely praise certain things despite failure. And so something that we, we, we talk about often is um, with our coaching staff is we, we want to catch players doing something uh, or instead of catching, catching players doing something wrong, we want to catch them doing something right and praise them. And then getting back to when we're coaching, when a player does something correct, we want to praise them. When a player does something wrong, then it's our job to coach them. And so this is what I like about you know, kind of how I've shaped my philosophy is now, instead of being frustrated by mistakes and taking it personally, like I used to, now I see a mistake that a player makes as an opportunity to coach them. And you know, again, if I think if we view coaching as our life calling, then we're going to be very sensitive and considerate um, to creating this error positive learning environment, especially for youth players. So I, I hope that answered that question because that was an incredible question, but that's, that's basically how I, I try to go about it. Yeah. I think that's something that we all struggle with as coaches. Cause you, you know, you see a teachable moment, but they're out there playing and you want to coach them. You want to give them some instruction, but, and, and then you got to let, just let them play it out and, and then see, um, if they learn from these things, but you sit there biting your tongue, like, cause you want to stop the action. You want to use that teachable moment to show everyone here, but also you got to give them the, the courage and provide them with the environment to go out there and make mistakes. Right. And, you know, I, I, I like where you're going with, with this, this topic, because it, it's, it's kind of near and dear to my heart because I feel that when we're, when we're coaching youth players, uh, we need to be very, I guess, uh, understanding of uh, coaching through asking questions more than coaching through uh, telling players or providing answers or giving players statements. And so I, I think that coaching is a little more asking players questions and a little less always telling them what to do. And I think that uh, our job as coaches and the forefront of our coaches is to listen. And we coaches are particularly particularly neglectful of listening because we tend to believe that we are responsible to tell rather than hear, or in this case, listen. And so when we listen to our players, it, it doesn't imply a loss of, a, of control by us as a coach. It implies a gain of athlete confidence and our respect for them. And so the whole, the reason why we want to do this is because we want our players to self-regulate. We want them to apply the rule of three to where they fix the problem themselves. Or uh, the second rule of three is um, they have a teammate step up and help fix the problem that's going on, whether that's te technical or tactical or emotional or behavioral. 
And we don't ever want to get to that last rule to where the coach has to step in and intervene. And so, uh, you know, just continuing on with that, um, the, a phrase that I heard that I really, it's a very impactful, uh, impactful to me is apparent learner disability is nothing more or less teacher or coach inflexibility. And so uh, we need to allow for flexibility uh, when we listen to our athletes and then we need to coach them. And how we provide this flexibility is we coach them through asking questions. So what does this look like for us when we're coaching our players? The first thing is, what do we reflect to our players about themselves? So how much of our reflection or how, do we realize how much of our reflection of them influences them and uh, how, how they are taking in our criticism or coaching, whether we're going to, we, we coach to criticize or we feel like our correction is uh, truly coaching. And then the second one is, is a growth mindset always at the forefront of our thoughts when we coach? Are we coaching with the end in mind? So coaching with the end in mind is one of uh, Steve, Stephen Covey's uh, habit number five of the seven habits of an effective le leader. So just adopting that into our coaching philosophy, um, are we coaching with the end in mind? And then do we view players by what they can do for us or for what we can do for them? And, and do we value the unseen potential of our players? Um, so, you know, just uh, that's, you know, you asked that question, I, and I kind of went off on a maybe a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I do think it's important for us as coaches to be aware of how we impact the psychological component of our players just by our own behavior uh, by the way we coach. Coach, I love everything you said. Yeah. And even if you went down, yeah. you know, a little we bit of a mind. rabbit hole, that this is, this is the type of stuff we love. We talk all the time on here about, you know, transformational coaching versus transactional coaching. I think you're speaking to that 100%, right? The line that you just said about, you know, it's not what they're going to do for us it's what we're going to do for them is just, I had to scribble that down. So I apologize if my thoughts are all over the place here. I just <laughs> love that statement yeah. because that's it. I mean, that's what you do as a teacher too, right? You're not teaching or even parenting. I have four children of my own and your parenting style, it's not what the kid's doing for you. It's how you're preparing that kid um, to live their own existence and to live their own life. So I just love, I love everything that you're giving us tonight. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, I think we have to, I was talking to a coach earlier this week about coaching. Do we coach for performance or do we coach for development? And this coach is a high performance coach. And so, you know, he's working with some of the best of the best. Me on the other side of this, I, I don't coach the best of the best. Yes. Our national team, we get the best of, you know, our island, but you know, we, the, some of them aren't high performing athletes. So the question is, and, I, and I'm trying to work through myself is, am I coaching for performance or I'm going to coach for development? So coaching for performance is about addressing or fixing a specific problem or challenge on the team. Not a bad thing, uh, but it's more result oriented. Whereas coaching for development is about turning the focus from the problem or challenge on the team to the person dealing with the problem or challenge on the team and it's more process oriented and so going into are we going to coach for performance or are we going to coach for development um i think we have to, as coaches we have to know how to manage our power as coaches because as coaches we have a tremendous power uh 
uh, over our team through whether it's through our position of coach, like I'm the head coach, do as I say, or whether we are coaching through our, our personal relationships. And I think this is a big, uh, you know, a, a big topic that we coaches need to be aware of and understand, are we going to coach for performance or are we going to coach through development? And so just really, I mean, philosophically, we have to weigh through that as coaches for sure. Coach, coach, excuse me. Um, I think that that might be the most profound thing that we've talked about tonight. Coach and I both coach at a very, at very small high schools here in the Western New York, Buffalo area. And the number of times that him or I have taken a team to a state championship, um, you could count on one hand, right? Or less than one hand. So for us, is if we're if our whole objective is performance only you know winning winning at the highest level is going to immediately lead to a letdown at the end correct is am i hearing you correctly there when you say that i mean when you're right. coaching for development you know very few of our high school athletes that we coach are going to be playing high level basketball or even you know division three or juco ball which we all know are great players in their own right you being one right. of them yourself so, you know, I think that's such a great mind shift that if we have coaches listening to this, this is something I've struggled with in, in my development as a coach over the last 20 years is when I came in as a young coach, it was like, how many wins can we get? Um, right. And we had those relationships, of course, because at the time I was younger and it was just kind of natural. Um, but as you get older, you definitely start to appreciate more the idea that a winning is hard and so if that's your only measuring stick you know you're gonna you're gonna be a little let down probably only one team really wins the championship at the end of the year so maybe focusing on development might be the right way to go right and you know i i think the the problem that me as a young coach had with coaching for performance versus coaching for development is i didn't realize it takes time and this is probably the reason why a lot of why the coaches don't coach for development is because a they don't have the time or b we don't have that mindset or growth mindset to understand that this is going to take some time and so coaching for development takes time and again it just comes back to do we do we know our what our philosophy is as coaches um you know are we gonna coach for development with with more of a personal power as coaches, or are we going to coach uh, for performance by more of a positional power uh, coaching philosophy? Coach, um, I, I think I know what you're going to say in this answer, but I love asking it to all of our basketball coaches. Um, what do you believe in your practice time you work on the most? Like you never go a day without it. Wow, that's a good question. I. That's tough because uh, I I don't I try not to do the same drill more than two or three times an entire season, and so there's always different loads to drills. Um, whether that's you know whatever whatever type of you know whether it's working on uh, half court offense or full court offense, you know transition offense. There's different loads, but I think the number one thing that we constantly work on. I would say is decision-making and whether that's in the full court or whether that's in the half court decision-making both on offense and defense, just putting players in situations to, 
they have to figure out uh, what the next best action is. Uh, for instance, uh, we talk about first touch decisions in almost all of our drills to where on, on the catch you play in, you know, you play in zero seconds on the catch, you're either going to shoot it, drive it, move it, which is their first touch decision uh, to gain either a small advantage or a big advantage. And I think, you know, those are the things that we are talking about constantly every single day in our, on our drills. Um, and then the concept, I guess, that we work on the most is because we do tr try to create big advantages within the first six, eight, six, eight seconds of the shot clock. We we're working on our transition offense and decision making uh, in transition offense every single day. And so that's that what I thought be, you were going to say. It, I mean, it can be. It, I mean, transition offense doesn't have to start uh, with the rebound outlet and then run the full length of the court. Uh, we we I mean when we get towards the the later end of our season or when we're tapering off because we have a, a tournament coming up and you know in a week or two, uh, we start our transition offense at half court and we always give a numerical advantage at first, uh, but we're always we call them our spacing scenarios. So we're working on our spacing, but all of those spacing scenarios and and playing with an offensive advantage always goes back to decision making. And so we, we like to put offensive advantage because without offensive advantage, uh, there can be no decision. And so we try to give them the opportunity to make a decision, have offensive advantage to find the big advantage shot. And then either we're, we're you know, we're, we have a trailing defender or we enter another defender into the play and then it becomes neutral. And then now they have to find a trigger, which is becomes a decision uh, to again, find a small advantage or a big advantage. So that's what we work on every single day. Um, and it, you know, obviously we're working on both sides of the ball when we're, when we're working through those concepts. Co Coach, do you, when you're coaching this up and I'm just thinking, you know, if coaches are interested in this decision-making process, like you're speaking about, which is just phenomenal stuff. What does the teaching of this look like from level to level? Like how young are you starting this teaching progression? Are you start like you said you're U17, are you starting with 15, 16 year olds or is your whole program designed with this in mind? That's a great question. We, uh, I work with the under 15s all the way up to the under 18s at different parts in the year. And then some years I don't, for instance, I won't work with the under 15 this calendar year. So how this looks like in our practice sessions, we, when we were working with younger players, we, we kind of gauge through kind of three categories. If it is a high, uh, let's, let's say it's a, a poor offensive skilled player. And then a, you know, an average defender, we always, give advantage to the offensive player. So for instance, this would look like, let's just work on a, a finishing drill. The ball is at the right elbow. Uh, we're gonna place a defender on the back of the offensive player to where the offensive player has chest to the rim, full advantage. When they get older, then we might move that defender to more of a neutral advantage or positional advantage to where the defender now has his chest to the offense's shoulder. So now on the finish, the offensive player has to get into either, you know, a protection plan with a stride stop or a back pivot. Uh, and then when they get older, they have to find an advantage 
to use a small advantage to get to a big advantage. So this may mean uh, we may be working on finishing, but they have to V cut to get open or, you know, use some type of small advantage to create that either big advantage with their chest to the rim or positional advantage to where the defender's chest is to the offensive player's inside shoulder. So that's kind of one that we, that's kind of the progression that we take. And even when we get an older team, we still work them through those progressions uh, just because we want to have what we want them to have a full, a full package of how to read the defender that's guarding them. And then once you get into reading your defender, whether you have positional advantage uh, then you got to read the, the the second or the first helper. And then so now we're teaching pass where the help came from, uh, how to keep the ball moving with ball speed to keep defense in rotation. And so all those decisions are layered from one-on-one -on -one with the offensive advantage to now it goes to maybe uh, two-on-two uh, with an offensive advantage. And now we're working on that baseline drift and working, you know, attacking closeouts in various ways uh, just so that we can kind of, again, scaffold their uh, learning so that it makes sense uh, in the end when we start introducing these bigger concepts. Oh, that's so good. I think it's what you, the word scaffolding there rings in my ears as a teacher. That's so important that you are able to continue to add on to that learning and keep developing those, those skills. Coach, we're running up against it. So I sure. think we're going to start to wind it down. Coach Klump, anything extra that you want to get in with coach? Yeah, I just wanted to ask coach one thing because I'm a big food connoisseur. And when I mean connoisseur, it's like eating anything that I can in front of my face. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh, what uh, I want to know, like, what is something that you got over to Guam and you were completely surprised by how awesome it was? Uh, banana lumpia. Uh, banana lumpia is like a fried, breaded banana. And if anybody who's like local listening to this from Guam, I apologize if I I got that wrong. Uh, we have red rice, uh, which is like a staple at a fiesta here. We have our barbecue chicken, which is not uh, – so if you're not from Guam, you're, you're called a haole. So it's not like a haole barbecue to where you're barbecuing July 4th style with, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers. Like our fiestas and barbecues are full on out. You know, there's like 20 different dishes. Uh, with that fiesta, you have uh, finadeni, which is like a – a uh, vinegar based like dip that you pour on your chicken or dip your chicken in. And then um, uh, th those are kind of like some of the Fiesta foods. And then uh, tatizas are, you know, real popular with, you know, whether you have uh, different types of chicken with it. Uh, so those are kind of like the foods that when I got over here, it was just absolutely amazing. And it, it, it never gets old. It really doesn't. Coach, that's so amazing. So you've really um, bought in, sounds like, with the, you know, the transition culturally with the food, you've do dove right into the basketball. How does that work with, you know, having the family? You mentioned you have one child and your wife. How do you find rhythm and balance? Maybe we'll close on this because a lot sure. of coaches have like kind of mentioned to us that it's not really balance as a coach, which Coach Klump and I both understand having, you know, families of our own but it's more of a rhythm it's been explained to us so you find rhythm how do you manage to do that with your family that's a really great question and i, I would say i'll be the first to admit i don't i i find uh 
myself off rhythm, I guess you could say more than on rhythm. But when I, I go back to my, what I feel like my life calling is as a coach, um, I, I, in my journal entries, I just read through them maybe once every three months. One of the ones I wrote back in July was, yes, I feel like my life calling is to be a basketball coach, but the true life calling that I feel God has called me to do is to be first and foremost, a, 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 a an incredible husband to my wife. And then a, uh, intentionally present father to my son. And so these things look like limiting TV. You know, we don't watch a whole lot of TV. What it looks like is, uh, eating dinner together every single dinner, uh, it's, you know, it's reading before bed. Uh, it's making sure I get up at an hour. I, I get up at 4.30 to get all my emails, Zoom calls, studying done in before my son wakes up so that I can not be, uh, I guess, uh, not giving him 100% attention. So uh, when it's a basketball season, uh, my wife is very, very, very supportive. When it's like a window where I travel you know, she is super supportive and, and she understands that what she says that my life calling becomes her life calling. And so really, it's like really, really blessed with an incredible uh, uh, family structure that, you know, I, I guess you could say the only person who messes up our family structure is my selfishness, <laughs> is me. So, you know, it's really, it's a great, you know, coaching is, we learn a lot through coaching, but I think the biggest thing that we learn as men and as leaders is how we're leading our family and really the mistakes that we make with our, with our kids and our impatience and our selfishness and our, you know, our shortness and our temper, you know, those are the things that, you know, have been really, my family is what teaches me those things. And so I don't know if that was like a, the, the correct answer to how to find rhythm, but I'm just really thankful that, you know, I can coach and that I have a family who helps me become a better person uh, as an individual. Yeah, I don't think there's one correct answer. That's the beauty of it. Everybody's got their way to find rhythm or their way to prevent or to present, you know, um, blessings to everybody else. And coach, you've been a blessing here for us on this podcast tonight. It's truly been uh, a pleasure talking to you and uh, I'm incredibly grateful. And, and you know, I, what, what, what takes me back by this podcast specifically is just knowing how you guys do this, your heart behind it. You know, there is so much beyond what happens in the court, whether that's through your faith, whether that's through you know, your family, things that you, you know, kind of like our mission statements for your podcast, but you just getting other coaches to share really is the spirit of sharing is one of the, the most incredible thing about the game of basketball. And not everybody has that spirit and, and you both have that spirit. And, and for coaches like me, I'm just incredibly grateful to share. And it's really just a huge honor just to even be, you know, talking with you guys on this podcast. So it's been a blessing to me and, and a huge encouragement to me. And thank you for the time to just share today with you guys. Anytime coach have a great season. Hope the weather is great for you out there. Enjoy it. And I hope to be hearing from you soon.
Yeah, Coach, we are going to appreciate you so much. I hope our listeners get to experience a little bit more FIBA action. I'm not going to lie. I was multitasking while we were talking. I had to look up some FIBA games on YouTube. And so I want to see some of this stuff in action. I'm ready to go. So, hey, listen, I know it's early in the morning to you. You have a great day there. Um, And we appreciate anything we can do to uh, serve, love, or care, as Coach Eric likes to say. Let us know. We're, We're all about it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Have a have a wonderful evening and a great start to your week. All, All right. right. Thank, Thank you, buddy. If you have an existing podcast or are looking to launch your own pod but aren't sure where to start, the team at My Podcast Manager can help. Our podcast team works behind the scenes so you can do what you do best. We'll help you launch your podcast, make it sound great, and free up your time for the more enjoyable parts of podcasting. If you're ready to put your podcast editing, production, and promotion on autopilot with a trusted team of podcasting professionals, visit mypodcastmanager.com to get started. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Ball podcast with Coach Eric Klump and Coach Justin Gersten. 